0: I wonder if you've ever had a time when you were uh, driving along, uh, going somewhere, and as you're driving in the right-hand lane, your plan was to uh, turn right into the driveway in order to go to uh, you know, a specific establishment. And I wonder if you ever had this time that I had just past weekend when I'm getting ready to turn right and, and I'm, I'm preparing my plan, and then all of a sudden as I'm getting ready, it's like the curb like jumps out at you and all of a sudden, you get you get this big bump over the road. I'm like, oh, I guess I missed the driveway. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Maybe it's just me. Uh, and if it is just me, then you know, pray for me and my car. And um, this past week I was going to Peterson's Donuts to to pick up uh, a donut uh, for a friend's birthday and uh, that way I could drop it off and, and be socially distant, but still uh, give a, a donut. And I just, man, that driveway just like, it, man, it lunged out at me. I had no idea that it was there. I totally misjudged it. And, and you know what happens? I don't know if you think this. Uh, my first thought is, oh no. And then my second thought is, I hope that doesn't throw my car out of alignment. I hope I don't have to spend money on this. I hope this doesn't become like my, you know, maybe going slightly too fast creates an issue in which, you know, we're, we're, we're spending money on something that I could have completely avoided. And so I don't know if you ever had that where it's, your fear is that when we run into something, all of a sudden the fear is that we're running or we're living out of alignment. Thankfully I did the test where you go on and you let go of the wheel And, you know, it's a flat area, you're going straight, let go of the wheel, and it didn't like, you know, sway to the side because, you know, I've learned more than I thought I would learn about alignments this week, about how there's three different angles that you need to do when you get your car aligned. It's the toe, the camber, and the caster. I don't know what they mean. I just wanted to say the term so that those of you who do know what they mean think that I know more than I really do because I don't. But this idea, there's three different ones that you do and you test it out, but what happens is, is that when you get your car aligned, right, they have to look underneath and they have, to, they have to be able to check and make sure that all the angles of the different tires are lined up. Doesn't mean that they're always perfectly straight because they may want to tilt things differently, but it's being in alignment. When we in our lives have these moments in which we are in alignment with what God has, man, it just feels, maybe not smooth sailings. It's not like everything's perfect, but we know that we're moving forward in the direction God has us. When we have those times where we hit the curb or we hit a pothole that we didn't see, or we have those times where we, our car gets jostled, our lives get jostled. What happens in a car? Once your alignment's messed up, how do you know? It's because it always drifts to the side and you have to fight to overcorrect it. Many of us in our lives, when we have sin, when we have things in our lives, we, we end up bumping into things. We hit potholes in our faith. We, we run up against something that makes our lives out of alignment. Maybe it's our marriages and our communication isn't what it used to be. Maybe it's our our children and we're not able to, we see them going off and doing things that we, we want so badly for them to be protected. We want so badly for them to not stumble and to go into temptation. And, and we have to Love them by letting them go. Maybe it's at school when we want to do well, but we're willing to allow the temptation to get good grades and our performance cause us to be willing to cheat and to shortcut our integrity. we run into something, we hit a pothole, our lives are out of alignment. And then we try to overcorrect for it. See, we are in a series this week um, as we're continuing the month of December, an Advent series in which we're calling Heaven on Earth. And typically during Advent, you know, we have, we have the different Advent candles, as you can see here. And normally we talk about, you know, faith and joy and love and peace. And those are all vitally important for us. But this year, as we're looking at how Earth has experienced just a crazy um, difficulty and heartache, and there's a lot of that we're struggling with, It felt important for us to remember that Jesus came to an earth where there was darkness. That those walking in darkness have seen a great light. That the darkness that surrounds us dwarfs in comparison to the light of the Lord, dwarfs in regards to He who said, by the power of His words, let there be light. And so as we're gonna looking at this week, Dan Lewis opened us up a couple of weeks ago and gave us kind of an overview of how to fix our eyes on God, to set our sights on God. And then last week we talked about creation. This week we're talking about the fall, a nice light Christmas topic, the fall of man and struggle we have with sin. Next week, Dan Goodham's gonna walk us through redemption and then we'll hit on restoration at Christmas Eve. But we're looking at the whole story of how important it is for us that Jesus brought heaven onto earth, that he lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, but was raised to new life so that we may be redeemed and restored. So I'm gonna ask, as we get ready to dive into Genesis chapter three, would you join me in a word of prayers? As we ask God to meet us here this morning. Wherever you hear my voice, you are loved by God, you were created by him, and he has something for you here today. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are here in this place. And God, I pray that everyone who hears my voice knows how much you love them. I pray that everyone who hears my voice would be restored wholly and completely. I pray that everyone who hears my voice today, as we dive into a hard topic and a hard passage, may we align ourselves with you and your word and may we not overcorrect and try to um, live lives our own way, but may we succumb and surrender our lives to you. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter three. And as we look at this idea of getting your car aligned and being out of alignment, you know, when there's alignment, there's four different wheels when you get your car aligned. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter three and look at four different different exchanges that, that we make when we give into sin and when we see the ramifications and the consequences of the fall of man. And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter three. I'm going to read, uh, start off verses one uh, through three a little bit here for us to kind of set the scene and then for us to unpack this time together. So Genesis three says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. We're going to stop there for a moment because we got to remember, what does it say the serpent is? It's crafty. What does Jesus say about the enemy? That when he speaks, lying is his native tongue. That he asks a question and so often when we fall into temptation, it's It's not a full frontal assault against our faith that causes us to fall into temptation. It's often the questions that make us doubt a little bit about God's goodness, a little bit about his truth, a little bit about his love, a little bit about who we are in him. It's these questions. Did God God really say you couldn't eat a tree of any of the trees in the garden? The serpent knew that that's not what God said, but asking the question allows for a seed of doubt rather than a full-on attack, which causes our walls to be built up. If God just, or if the serpent just went to Adam and Eve and said, God's a liar. He'd like, no, he's not. He's good. Look at what he's done for us. And they'd be able to, you know, hopefully and prayerfully be able to live in Eden longer. But he asks a question. Did God really say that? People that we know may ask us, are you really not supposed to do those things as Christians? Is that really a big deal? Is it really an issue for you to say this or do that or watch this or think that? Is it really a big deal? It's, it's these questions that create seeds of doubt that allow for sin to grow. But I want to look at these four different things because the first wheel, if you will, if we're looking at our lives being out of alignment with God's word and how he, what he wants for us, the first wheel that we do is that we often, we exchange God's truth for a lie. We exchange truth for a lie. We have God's truth. We have what he says, but we are willing to give that up to receive a lie that may feel maybe it's what we want to hear. Maybe it's more comforting to us. Maybe it, it makes us think we could do what we want to do without ramifications. And we exchange truth for a lie. And as we look at that first wheel, let's look together at what verse 4, um, and, verse four and 5 say. In response to this that Eve said, verse 4 says, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you hear from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I put the verse up here because uh, if you could see it either on the screen or if you're able to watch here, there are two verses or sorry, two um, sections that are highlighted for you. And because there are two, as Pastor Miles shared, and I've, I've really appreciated his teaching in this, there are two lies that we believe about sin based on what the enemy says, what the serpent says here. The first one is this that says, you will not certainly die. What does that inherently tell us? It causes us to believe the lie that there are no consequences for our sin. That we think that if if we sin privately that no one knows about, that that doesn't impact anybody else. We think that if we see what we shouldn't see, hear what we shouldn't hear, say what we shouldn't say, that won't impact anybody else. We think that if bitterness resides in our hearts, that that won't influence our relationships. We think that slander or gossip won't destroy someone's character. We think that anything that we have inwardly inside of ourselves when we sin, we think that there are no consequences. We think that we could cheat on a test and get away with it. We think that we could be rude or be harsh words with family and think that it doesn't really matter. We believe, if we're honest, one of the reasons why we sin is because we believe that there are no consequences to it. And that very seed of doubt of the lie of one of those lies comes from the very beginning when the serpent says, you're not going to die. Nothing's going to happen to you. And that seed of doubt grew enough that Adam and Eve were willing to partake in it. But there's a second lie that we need to unpack a little bit here. It's not just one that you will not certainly die, but two, when the serpent says that you will be like God. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. In other words, one lie, as we look at this wheel of exchanging truth for a lie, one lie that we believe that there's no consequences for our sin. The other lie that we believe is that we can be the ones to determine what's right and wrong, good and evil for us. We say, well, you know, maybe you believe you shouldn't be doing certain things, but you know, for me, you know, my, my truth is that I, I can do what I want. My truth is that, you know, that's not an issue for me, so I don't need to worry about that. So, so maybe you, you do you and I'll do me and we'll just kind of do this. And it's this, this moral relativism that permeates through our culture, right? It's this moral relativism and the fact that morality is relative, that our idea is that, you know, I'll live my life, you live your life. And as long as the worst thing we could do is try to impede on how someone else is living or to try to speak truth to people because they think, well, then you're stepping on my truth. And how, how, how can you have an objective truth? And that's what is one of the things that creates division is that we, as a people in our human condition, we fall into the lie that we think we are the ones who are fully capable of understanding right and wrong, good and evil, that our eyes would be opened and that we'll be able to see what's right for us. But here's what this means for us is that when we exchange God's truth for a lie, it means that we look at the Bible and we think, okay, I'm going to pick some of these parts that I like and I'll follow those parts. There's some parts that I don't really understand the reasoning for. So I will choose what's right and wrong. Not, not the objective word of God that I will choose what's good and evil, not the objective word of God. And then we think that because we choose ourselves that we can, we buy into the lie that we can choose what's right and wrong. And then we buy into the lie that there are no consequences. What does that mean? That means that when we sin, when we choose what's right or wrong for us, and then we partake partake in it, and then there are consequences. Do we ever point the finger at ourselves? No, we blame God, even though he already laid it out. But we're out of alignment. We've allowed something to jostle us. And now We're drifting away from God rather than staying focused and aligned with him. We exchange a truth for lies that some of you here and some of you watching online have believed lies that you're not good enough, believed lies that you were not loved, believed lies that there's no reason for you to be here on this earth. You believed lies that you are unworthy. And if we live with that cloud hanging over us and we think that that is truth, then it's going to dictate how we live. And we're going to exchange the truth. Because what's the truth? The truth is that you are loved. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are deeply loved. That there is a purpose for you here. That you are so worthy that God looks at you in your life and says, I know all your sin. I know all your shame. I know all your struggles. I know all of your weakness. And knowing all those things, that doesn't stop me from loving you. Knowing all those things means that I show my love for you and demonstrate my love for you that while, we were still, while you were still sinner, I sent Jesus to die for you that God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You are deeply worthy, not out of your own works and your own good deeds, but out of the saving works and deeds of Jesus on the cross. What he did for us makes us worthy. So we ought not forget the truth of how loved you are. And we ought not buy into the lie that the world may tell us that you're not enough. So we look at here, the first lie, the idea that, or the first wheel is that we end up looking at exchanging truth for lie. The second wheel that we want to talk about, that we want to impact and look at alignment is this idea that we often exchange God's way for our way. We exchange God's way for our way. We, once we decide we know what is right and wrong, good and evil, we then choose to act upon our own way rather than trusting what God has for us. Pick this up in verse six. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. As Dan Lewis was shared with us a couple of weeks ago, sin entered through the eye. It It was Eve saw something and she didn't set her sights and fix her eyes on God, but she saw something that distracted and that tempted. And that was the gateway through which the sin had entered, the fall has entered. So what we fix our eyes on determines so much about what it is that we set our sights on and how we live and where our alignment is. But I highlighted the, votes, the, the parts here because in both of these sections, it says, that talks about Eve, that she took some and ate it, and then Adam, who was with her, ate it. They decided that they were gonna forego and exchange God's way of doing things, of saying, Everything in creation is able for you. Everything in Eden is good for you. The ground is gonna work for you well. That You're gonna have um, you know, just life and relationship with God in a way we can't even imagine. All that there. Just, there's just that one tree don't eat from. Why does God do that? Well, one of the things is, is that in order for there to truly be love, there has to be a choice. You can't force someone to love you and you can't be forced necessarily to love. So we have to have the freedom to choose allows for the ability to love. And so because of that, he says, listen, there's the tree. Don't eat from that one. But they looked with their eyes. They bought into the lie. And then they ended up grabbing it and they took it and they ate it. And I intentionally say they, because Eve did it. Adam was right there with her, right? Adam could have swatted the fruit out of her hand. Adam could have kicked the serpent and got him out of there for trying to tempt his wife. I mean, Adam could have stepped up. They both were there. They both ate it. They both exchanged God's way for their own way of doing things. And verse seven continues this idea as it talks about how then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The importance of the fig leaves here is, is the fact that we, when we know that we have, when they knew they had their own sin, their own nakedness, their own shame, they did the best to cover themselves on their own. But we see later on in the passage that when we try to cover our own sin, our own shame on our own, that that is insufficient. That we try to sow fig leaves together, or we try to promote ourselves as being secure when we have these insecurities. We promote ourselves as having it all together when really we're breaking down. We, we put outside what looks like we're doing well. And we have these sins in our lives that we try to cover up, but the only way for the covering up or the, the, the freedom from sin is the shedding of blood, as we see later on in verse 21 of this passage. But we see here that there are two different ways that we often try to, um, Live well enough that we don't need a Lord and a savior. First, we think we don't need a Lord because we think I'm not gonna let someone tell me how to live. That I'm not gonna listen to the truth of God's word. I'm not gonna listen to God's way. So I'm gonna do things my way and my way. One way that we do that is being like the younger son in the prodigal son passage of Luke 15, in which they go out and he foregoes relationship with God, goes and lives however he wants. And because I don't know, I wanted to keep the alignment theme, the car theme, uh, I picture this as being embodied by um, an experience with bumper cars, because there's kind of this space, and you just kind of go in and you just knock anybody around, you could do what you want, they do what they want. it's kind of just this mass of chaos, and you know you're you're laughing as you knock somebody over and they're laughing, and then they're not laughing anymore until the point where like, it actually hurts, and it was like this moment this like Whatever it is, two minutes of chaos where everyone is just doing what they want, not caring how it impacts anybody else. They just wanna knock people over. And so many people, we live our lives, maybe not with the two minutes, but in the span of eternity, our, our years here are but a breath and we go living the way we wanna live, knocking people down the way we wanna knock them down, doing things the way that we wanna do them, exchanging God's way and his life for our way of doing things. Like the younger son who just goes off and lives the way he wants. But Timothy Keller in his book, Prodigal God, mentions that version. But then he also says the other way that people can do, try to live their own way is that they want to live so well and follow all the rules so clearly that they don't even need a savior because they haven't sinned. They've done everything right. And so this is more embodied or, or, or pictured as utopia when we look at Disneyland, right? Because Autopia, there's just one track. And you can kind of go off here and off there, but the idea is that there's this one track and, and you just do, you kind of stay within these lines and that's just the way that, that it works. But whereas one seems like it's really fun, like bumper cars, but there's a lot of impact. The other one is just kind of monotonous. It's mechanical. It's, there's no relationship there. There's no, there's no freedom there. It's just you kind of stay with what's in front of you. Trying to choose our own way of doing the things we want or trying to do all the right things religiously without a relationship, both of those lead towards us doing our own way. Because God's way is that we acknowledge that we are sinners. We acknowledge that we're broken. We confess our sins and God is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and we trust him for the redemption of our sins and the salvation of our souls. It, it would be like going on a, a car, cons- keep, keeping with that theme. And instead of it being a bumper car, instead of it being on Autopia, it's, it's we're in the car and we're letting Jesus take the wheel, stepping aside, letting him guide us. But we're experiencing that relationship together as we are hopefully aligned and following where God has us. We exchange truth for a lie. Second wheels, we exchange God's way for our way. The third one is that we exchange being known for being afraid. We exchange being known for being afraid. We see it here, continuing on in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the, go- the sound of the Lord God as he was walking to the gar- in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? We exchange being known for being afraid when Adam and Eve had a relationship with God that we can't fathom here on earth, that he would walk amongst the garden with him. Like in the garden, him, I walk in the garden alone, right? But then we tarry with him there. This idea that, That relationship, that kind of being known by God is something that now we don't allow ourselves to be known. We're afraid and we hide from him because we're aware of our sin. And so being known, he already knows all of your sin, all of my sin. He already knows all of your struggles, all of my struggles. He already knows all those things. So we could try to hide, but he sees us anyways. Verse nine, when we look at the verse here, it talks about how, he asked, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Does that mean that the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe, creator of the heavens and earth, all of a sudden lost his kid? No. It's not where are you locationally. What location are you, Adam? Which, which hide and seek bush are you hiding behind? It's not a locational question. It's a relational question. It's where are you? We experience this with our friendships, uh, with our spouses, with our kids, where we have a closeness. A- and then things happen, and there's a reason why. We don't even, can't even pick our, put our finger on it, but there's a, a separation that happens, a creeping separateness in the relationship. And maybe we need to have a conversation about it and say, hey, we're doing fine, and now it seems like we're not. Like, where, where are you? Where, where are we right now? Because relationally, we're not where We once were, and we're not where we want to be. So where are you? And then what is, how does Adam respond? He said, "I, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid and I hid. I was afraid. If we realize truly how much God loves us, the fact that he knows all our sin and loves us anyway, then we would not, we would not need to, buy into our relationship of fear, we can know that we can be fully known and fully loved by God. Again, not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is and how much Jesus died on the cross means for us, the impact of his sacrifice. That we exchange, we exchange the truth for a lie, we exchange God's way for our way. We then exchange being known for being afraid and it's really hard to have a relationship with someone, a love relationship with someone when you're afraid of them. Cause there's always gonna be that wall. There's always gonna be that bush to hide behind. There's always gonna be that desire to stay separate. When Jesus shows how much, he doesn't want us to stay separate. He wants us to come in relationship with him, through him, with the father because we're fully known and yet still fully loved that Timothy Keller talks about how we are both more sinful than you can imagine and we, are both, and we are more loved than you could ever dare to hope. So we've looked at these three and then the last one here, the three, four different wheels, exchange truth for a lie. We exchange God's way for our way. We exchange being known for being loved. And then lastly, we exchange blessings for curses. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Guys don't do that. That's not good. Uh, Adam should have stepped up. Let's not? Eve sinned. Adam could have rescued it and been part of that. Prop the solution, not the problem. Then the Lord God, verse 13 said to the woman, "What is it that you've done? The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." Remember, she exchanged the truth for a lie. And then she chose her own way. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will not, excuse me, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So they exchanged the blessing of relationship with God, of fellowship with him that we can't imagine, the blessing of being one and in shalom and and, in wholeness and harmony with creation. They sacrificed that, they exchanged that and then they received curses for it. That we have been so blessed that we, I'm so thankful that we, you know, it's a little, It actually feels pretty nice out here now. I was, I was wearing a jacket earlier in the first service, but you know, we are able to live in a place where we can have outdoor services in December. We are able to have technology where those of you who are being safe and staying by staying home and taking care of you and yours, that you are able to join us live and to be able to be a part of service. That we have a God who is not limited by four walls of a building that we have opportunity to worship him in fellowship, in community, that that we are so blessed. And yet when our mindset changes and we exchange the recognition of our blessings for frustration of the blessings we don't have, then even the blessings will feel like curses to us. Even the choice foods will feel like bitter gravel because we're not content. Because we're not content, and we exchange a truth for a lie we choose god's way uh, we choose our way over god's way then we take it we eat it and we receive these curses and then we curse god because he's the one who did this to us not realizing that we're the ones who did it to ourselves because he set out the path to be aligned with him and we've drifted we've drifted away and it can take and needs to take this inspection to be aligned with him to be aligned with god's word to be aligned through the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. Because our main point or kind of the summary of, of the message today is this idea that when our idea of sin is too small, we diminish the impact of the fall. When we think that the, the sin is just our small thing that we commit that no one's watching then we think, well, then it's really not that big of a deal. And if sin's not really that big of a deal, then why do I need to confess it? And if I don't need to confess it, then why do I even need to believe that there's a right and wrong? I mean, we start to extrapolate these because we've become misaligned in any one of these four areas. But if our sin wasn't a big deal, then why did Jesus have to die? If our sin wasn't a big deal, why did God send his one and only son? That we often think of sin as Commission, the things that we commit, the bad things we do. Then some of us might have a a slightly um, expanded definition. This comes from, uh, we see this in Joshua 7, the story of Achan, that sin isn't just commission, the things we commit, that we do, that we shouldn't. It's also omission. It's the good things we don't do, that we should, that James talks about. If you know what is the right thing to do and you don't do it, that is sin for you. So sin is commission, what we commit. Sin is omission, what we omit. But then sin's impact has an impact of transmission, which the curse didn't just come to Adam and to Eve and the serpent. The curse came upon the ground. That now work was hard. That now there's a misalignment, that there's out of alignment with God and his creation, which is humans, yes, but all of creation are now no longer in alignment. There was a jostle, there was a pothole that they hit that caused creation to start to drift away. That Romans 8 talks about how creation is subject to frustration because of sin. Talks about how it longs with with pangs like childbirth for the sons of God to be restored and redeemed. That it talks about how all of creation is impacted by the sin of man. So our sin is not just the small thing that we do that no one sees It impacts those around us because it's even the good things that we don't do. Achan, he sinned by um, stealing something and then his family sinned by not saying anything about it. And so his family died, he died, and 36 men in the battle of the Israelites against Ai died. Other people are impacted by what we do and other people are impacted by what we don't do, that we ought to. But then lastly, sin has infected creation. And all of creation is longing for the day when not just the redemption of our sin takes place, which we experience on the cross, we'll hear about next week, but also the restoration that all things that were made wrong are made right. All things that were broken are fixed. All things that are wounded would be healed. All tears would be put away. There'd be no more crying and no more pain, no more heartache. There's a restoration of how things were meant to be in the beginning. So we wanna close that if we want to expand our idea of sin today, the fall of man, because this is not just something that happened years and years and years and years ago. This is something that if we are out of alignment, you and I can fall into this each and every day. So let we, let's, let's not exchange truth for a lie. How do we do that? Spend time in God's word so you know what his truth is. Spend time in prayer so you know and you hear the voice of truth rather than the lying voice of the enemy. That we exchange God's way for our way. How do we avoid that? To be obedient when God calls us to do something, even when we don't understand it. That when we exchange being known for being afraid, when that fear starts to stir up, may we confess that fear, our sin to God. May we confess to those around us. Because God has allowed us to be in a community so that when we confess and we are known and love still, it paints a picture of how we confess to God and we are still known and loved by him. And then we exchange blessings for curses. How do we do that? We need to know that there are ramifications for our sins. And so therefore, living a life that is blessed, not because we receive, but living a life that is blessed by how we obey, how we follow God and how we stay in alignment with him. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and I thank you for your word. God, I, I know that there are parts of the sermon, uh, God, that would be convicting to us. And Lord, I know it'd be really easy for us just to turn off uh, our minds and our hearts to what you would have to build up those walls and to stay hidden and to be behind a bush or to hide behind our securities or, or hide behind our sin, to hide behind our identity and anything other than you. And you ask us today, Lord, where are you? Jesus, may we wrestle today with Receiving and answering the question, where are we? Not locationally, but relationally with the Father. So God, we pray that you would stir in us. Meet us where we are. Help us to see that if our idea of sin is too small, it diminishes the impact of the fall. We need to see how much our sin impacts ourselves, our souls, our families, our friends, our workplaces, our city, our church, our country, our world, and the very creation itself. So God, speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.